So we are close to the end of the epic journey that has been the book of Genesis. It was pretty much 2018 for our church. And after today's study, we're gonna be wrapping things up next Sunday. If you're just joining us now, Joseph's family have been reunited with him in Egypt. Jacob has hugged his favorite son whom he thought was long dead. And not only has he discovered that Joseph is alive, but he's the prime minister of Egypt. He's ruling and reigning over the most powerful empire on the earth at this time. And he's leading them through a devastating famine with incredible leadership and planning. And we've learned through our studies these last couple of months that Joseph is a picture of Jesus. That means aspects of his life and story point to the life and work of Jesus. And when we left our story, Joseph was getting ready to introduce some of his family members to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, for the first time. He had told his brothers to say that they were shepherds because shepherds were considered the lowest class of people in Egyptian society. And so if they said they were shepherds, they would basically be left alone by all of the Egyptians. And that was important because if they weren't left alone, they very quickly would have been swallowed up by Egyptian culture, intermarried, and they would have lost their unique identity of their families being called to live set apart, separate as people who live for God, by God's laws, and under God's guidance. So let's dive in. We're gonna be in Genesis 47, verse one. Genesis chapter 47, verse one. Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Just start there and flip over till you see the big four seven, and we'll jump in in verse one. It says, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, My father and brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan and indeed they are in the land of Goshen. We learned last week that Goshen is just the best part of the Egyptian land, the most pleasant and fertile land, the best part of Egypt to live in. Verse two, and he, that's Joseph, took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, Your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we've come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph saying, your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So Joseph's brothers are welcomed by the king of Egypt. They're welcomed by Pharaoh. He gives them the best land to live in. They're even made stewards or or caretakers of the king's wealth and resources. He says, have them take care of my things. And all for one reason, not because they were great, not because they were wonderful people, it's because they were Joseph's brothers. The Bible tells us that when we give our lives to Jesus, we're adopted into the family of God, and while Jesus becomes our savior, he is also incredibly our brother once we're in the family of God. He's our brother. And when we stand before God the Father in heaven, we too will be welcome, will be invited to dwell in his kingdom, will be treated like family for one reason. We're Jesus' brothers and sisters. 
And as Joseph's brothers stand before the king, before Pharaoh, we can't help noticing that Joseph never brings up the past. He doesn't say, hey, Pharaoh, these are my brothers. Yeah, the ones I told you about who tried to kill me when I was 17, those guys. But let's not talk about that. He doesn't doesn't do that. Just as Jesus will never bring up our past to God the Father, because what Jesus did on the cross took care of every sin we've ever committed, every sin we're committing, and every sin we'll commit in the future. And that's why we love Jesus so much. He's just, he's just too good. And this is all talked about by, by Jude in the New Testament. He writes this last couple of verses in his book called a doxology, where he just sort of bursts out in this prayer of praise. It's on your outlines, and this is what Jude says. He says, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to, and then underline this, present you faultless and keep underlining before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior who alone is wise be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever, amen. You and me, faultless, faultless? Yeah, because every sin has been judged It's been paid for, and it's been therefore erased by the one who took our place, Jesus. Faultless, faultless. Isn't that amazing? And if that wasn't enough, Jesus will present us to his heavenly Father, faultless, with exceeding joy, not with exceeding embarrassment. Yeah, they're with me. No, Jesus is going to be so glad, he's going to be so overjoyed to present you and I to his Father in heaven one day. You know, I don't know why Jesus loves me like he does, but I'm so very glad that Jesus loves me. I'm so glad he loves me. Would you write this down on your outlines? Because Jesus is our brother, we can always come confidently before the throne of God. Because Jesus is our brother, we can always come confidently before the throne of God. You know, when we come to God, whether it's in prayer, in worship, in Bible study, anything, we're never coming before him because we're so great or because we say, Lord, you know what? I want to ask you for something because I've been on a good run lately. I mean, none of the really big sins have really come up for the past week, so I figured I'd ask for something right now while I'm on a good run. That's not how it works. We can come before God and have a relationship with him for one reason and one reason only. We're with Jesus, and he's taking care of everything else. We're with Jesus. That, that's our only claim. I'm with him. I'm with him. That's how it works. Verse 7, then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh, which is astonishing because The Bible tells us that in this culture at this time, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So you see, people believed that a blessing from someone really meant something. It really mattered. It made a difference. And so you would only want to be blessed by someone who was greater than you or greater than you in the area in which they were blessing you. So could you imagine, for example, if I went to LeBron James and I said, LeBron, would you like me to pronounce on you a basketball blessing that my skills might be imparted to you? It really wouldn't be all that impressive of an offer, and he'd probably be like, you know what? 
I'm good, thanks man. Similarly, nobody in Jacob's day would have wanted or accepted a blessing from someone they didn't consider to be greater than themselves. And incredibly, here we find Pharaoh, the most wealthy and powerful ruler on the earth at this time, being blessed by by Jacob, Joseph's dad. You see, Pharaoh was so impressed with Joseph that he held Joseph's father in the highest regard. Though he had never met Jacob, he loved him because Jacob had given him the gift of Joseph, who had blessed Pharaoh beyond measure. It's the same idea as when Jesus told his disciples, he who's seen me has seen the Father. If we wanna know what God the Father in heaven is like, all we have to do is look at Jesus. Read the Gospels in your Bible. What is Jesus like? That's what God the Father is like because that's what Jesus says. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. We're the same. And we've been blessed beyond measure by our heavenly Father who sent us his son, Jesus. And when we allow Jesus to rule our lives as Pharaoh allowed Joseph to rule his kingdom, we will find ourselves being blessed directly by Jesus' Father. James 1.17 tells us that Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Every good thing in our lives is a gift, a blessing from our Heavenly Father. Do you want your life, do you want your your kingdom, so to speak, to be blessed? Then let Jesus rule over it. Let Jesus rule over it as Joseph ruled over Pharaoh's kingdom. Do you want to be blessed by your Heavenly Father? Then let his Son rule your life, and you'll be blessed. Write this down on your outlines. Our heavenly Father blesses those whose lives are ruled by his son, Jesus. That's what he's looking for. He's saying, who's letting my son rule over their kingdom? I wanna bless them, I wanna bless them. Verse eight, Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage, underline pilgrimage, are 130 years. I'm 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. It's kind of a cranky old man. Life is short. Jacob was 130. And yet here he is saying, life is short. It's a vapor. It's over like that. Time has flown by and you know what, most of my life I've, I've had problems. I haven't always done well. I wasted too much of my life. And as we've studied his life, you know that's true. But in Jacob's words is also found a profound insight. I had you underline it. He refers to his life as his pilgrimage, his pilgrimage. Another translation would say his sojourning, his travels from one place to another, his journey how we need to grasp this. There is so much wisdom and truth in this statement. Every single person's life is a journey from one place to another. This life is simply a prelude to eternity and when we grasp that, it changes everything about the way we live, everything. This is why Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth 
where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The reality is there's, there's not only this life. You don't only live once. You don't. So don't waste your life pursuing things and building things that are gonna stay here when you're gonna be leaving. Jesus said live for eternity. Live for heaven. Live for the kingdom of God. Live for things that will benefit you eternally. Don't lose sight of the fact that this life is a pilgrimage. Write this down. This life is a pilgrimage. It's not our final destination. It's not our final destination. I don't want to get sidetracked, but man, is it an enormous deception of the enemy when the message of our culture is, hey, you know, you only live once. That's not true. That's not true. And in this life, we have to make sure we don't let what seems urgent take priority over what's most important. This is called the, the tyranny of the urgent. There's always pressing things in life that scream for your attention, but those things are rarely the most important things. I heard somebody say it really well. They, they said, our, our biggest fear in life shouldn't be failure. Our biggest fear should be succeeding in things that don't matter. Succeeding in things that don't matter. I achieved all this, I got this title, I got this house, I got this accomplishment, and I, you know, I spent years of my life on it, and then to reach the end of your life and realize it doesn't matter. None of it mattered. That's something to take seriously. You blink and your life is over. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Jacob goes on speaking of the years of his life and he says, and they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers. He's speaking of his father Isaac and his father Abraham in the days of their pilgrimage. I'm not gonna live as long as they did and I'm not gonna accomplish the same things they did. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh again and went out from before Pharaoh. So after confessing that he feels like he's wasted way too much of his life, he blesses Pharaoh again, which kind of cracks me up because he's saying, you know, I'm not really all that great, Pharaoh, but I'm still greater than you. Let me bless you. Now, now why? why? Why could he make this claim? What's so great about Jacob? Well, Jacob had been given another name by God himself. Do you remember what God had changed his name to? He had changed his name to Israel, which means governed by God. That is why Jacob was greater than Pharaoh, because nothing that you and I achieve in this life, nothing we acquire, no title we gain or destination we reach or status we attain will ever be a greater achievement or accomplishment than simply knowing God, than just knowing God. If you're a follower of Jesus, then you are greater than practically all the world's ultra-powerful, ultra-elite, ultra-wealthy for one reason. You know God. You know God. The prophet Jeremiah recorded the Lord saying it like this. It should be on your outlines. He said, but let him who glories, that means let him who boasts, glory in this, that he understands and knows me. 
God says, listen, if, if you could see things from eternity, from the perspective of heaven, you'd understand there's only one thing worth boasting about in life, that you know God, that you know God. Everything else is meaningless. There's nothing you can achieve that's greater than knowing God, nothing. And, and apart from knowing God, anything you achieve is meaningless. It's meaningless. It might be important right now, but when you die, it's gonna mean nothing. Verse 11, and Joseph situated his father and his brothers, put them in place, and, and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt. He gave them property in the best of the land, in the land of Rameses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. In other words, he gave them whatever they needed. So let's take a step back now. What was the purpose of this whole famine? If you remember our story, there were seven years of plenty where Joseph was able to store up grain and food, and then there would be seven years of famine, and so he prepared for that. But, but why did the famine happen? You see, it's at this point in our story when, when all the pieces have come together that we can begin to understand why. It was to get Joseph's family to come to him. It was to get all the people of Egypt, all the people of the world to come to him because he was the only source of food. And he's a picture of who? Jesus. He's a picture of Jesus. If you're distant from the Lord because you've never had a, a real relationship with Jesus, or because you've just drifted from him. The Lord will use circumstances, he'll use trials, he'll use difficulties in your life to get you to come to him. He's the only one who can give you life, joy, peace, and meaning. And so if you haven't realized that yet, because the Lord loves you, he's gonna do stuff in your life to help you realize you're not gonna find that stuff anywhere other than in a relationship with him. So if you're distant from the Lord and your life is going through a famine in some way, your most important relationship just isn't working out, your family is falling apart, your work life is in chaos, your financial life is under pressure, if there's a famine in some area of your life and you're distant from God, I can practically guarantee you it's because God is using that to get you to come to him the way that he used the famine to get people to come to Joseph. Why? Because God loves you enough to let the bottom fall out of your life if that's what it takes to get you to come to him so that he can save your life. So do it. If you're there, come to Jesus. Would you write this down? The ultimate purpose of this famine was to bring Joseph's family and all peoples to Joseph. That was the point, to get them to come to him. I should just say, we're not gonna get into it now, but for those of you who study eschatology, there's some major parallels there to the, the purpose and some things that are gonna happen during the tribulation period as well. Verse 13, now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and all the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought. And Joseph brought the money, bought, sorry. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, give us bread for why should we die in your presence for the money has failed. Then Joseph said, we'll give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. 
So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone, and my Lord also has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of our Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's, and as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh. And they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them, therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. That means your children. Verse 25. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So this is incredible. Joseph ends up getting practically all the land in Egypt under Pharaoh's ownership, all the money in Egypt into Pharaoh's accounts, all the livestock into Pharaoh's portfolio, and all the people under Pharaoh's employment, and the people are are grateful. They're grateful, why? Because they understand that Joseph has saved their lives. What's the point of owning land if you're starving to death? What's the point of owning Cattle, if you're just going to eat them and then starve to death. What's the point of having money if you're starving to death? You can see why Pharaoh and the people of Egypt thought so much of Joseph. Instead of starving to death, they all had jobs. They all had land to farm. They all had seed and they're able to grow food. Joseph's planning had literally saved their lives. And this is a picture of how Jesus saved us. You see, We were headed for death. No matter how wonderful we might think we are, we can't make ourselves perfect, which is God's standard. We can't make ourselves perfect any more than those starving Egyptians could make bread appear out of thin air. So what's the deal that Joseph, the picture of Jesus, offers the people? He says, I'll save you. I'll provide for you. I'll bless your lives, and you will prosper. But in exchange... Everything you have is mine, and you become servants of my father, Pharaoh. Father, parenthetically there, Pharaoh. And the people's response, as any sane person would, is, yes, we were headed for death a moment ago, but you, you've saved us. We're, we're glad to serve you. We're glad to give you all we have. We're, we're glad to be servants of your father, Pharaoh. And that's the response of every person who who gives their life to Jesus because they understand that they were headed to death until Jesus stepped in and saved them. And that's why we're, we're glad to view our whole life as belonging to God. 
That's why we're glad to serve God, because we understand what he's done for us. You know, when a person has, has truly given their life to Jesus, they're glad to give to the Lord, because they get it. They understand God has saved their life. Can you imagine one of these Egyptians who's starving to death responding to Joseph's offer by trying to negotiate? Can you imagine if he said, oh, Pharaoh gets one-fifth, it's 20%. I'll do 10. Or what about this? What if they had said, oh, I knew it. I knew you were gonna make it about money, Prime Minister Joseph. You're not in it just to save our lives. You're just after the money. Can you imagine? People would look at that guy like, you're gonna be dead in a month then everything you own will be worthless. When a person feels like the cost of following Jesus is too high, he wants me to make what what change in my life? He says I'm not supposed to do what? I'm, I'm supposed to put him first by doing that? Money? He wants money? When a person feels like the cost of following Jesus is too high. It's only because they don't understand the reality of their situation. They don't understand. Man, you're dying outside of the kindness and goodness of God. And for those of us who understand that, we're glad to serve. We're glad to give our whole lives, every area, to honoring and being a servant of the Father. Now on a different note, Something a little more mystical, because that's kind of our thing here. There's also another meaning layered into this part of the text. When, when Joseph's family are dwelling in peace in Egypt, and there's this period of rest, it parallels events that are gonna happen in the future, right after the second coming of Jesus, specifically the millennium. If you've never heard of this, this is gonna be a shock to you. Jesus is coming again to the earth When he comes to the earth, he's gonna stay for a thousand years and rule and reign on the earth as its king, literally in Jerusalem. The earth is gonna go back to the way it was when he first designed it. We're talking Garden of Eden type environment and everyone is gonna see the world that God made. And one of the big things that's gonna happen then is everyone who says, well, well, how could God let this bad thing happen? Everyone's gonna get to see the world that God gave to you and I. Everyone's gonna get to see it so that they can go, oh, he actually gave us perfection to enjoy and we're the ones who messed it up. But make a note of this, the time period following the arrival of Joseph's family in Egypt parallels the events and circumstances of the millennial kingdom. And I'll explain in a second, the millennial kingdom. You see, Joseph's brothers rejected him the first time, didn't they? When he was 17, they sold him as a slave. They thought his life would end in Egypt. But they accepted him and his leadership the second time when they encountered him in Egypt. Jesus was rejected by his people, the Jews, the first time. We all know about that. But they will accept him the second time as their Messiah when he comes to them at the second coming in the future. And just as Joseph's family dwelt in peace in Egypt as Joseph ruled and reigned, so too shall the Jewish people dwell in peace in their land 
when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth for a thousand years. And there's good reason to believe that if you pay attention to the details in this text, you're gonna learn some things about what it's gonna be like on the earth during the millennial reign of Jesus. And that would be a wonderful study for you to take on this week. And I, I wanted to just leave it there, but I have to give you one example because it's so cool. Just to give you an idea of the stuff to look for, I'll give you one example. What's the first thing Joseph does? He collects all of the money in Egypt, all the money in Egypt under the rule of Joseph in this time period. The Bible says that money's the root of all evil. No, no. The Bible says love of money is the root of all evil. So when Jesus is reigning on the earth, when he's bringing peace and harmony, shalom to the earth, money as we know it's going to have to go. The world economic system is going to have to be thrown out the window. When the prophet Isaiah wrote about what it's going to be like in the millennial kingdom, one of the things he said was this in Isaiah 55. It cracks me up because it starts with the word ho. So I always imagine him going like, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And And he says, and then notice this, and you who have no money, now get this, you who have no money, come buy and eat. Yes, in case you thought he was doing it by accident, he says it again. Yes, come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Economic system thrown out the window. Under the rule and reign of Jesus, everyone has everything they need. Everyone has more than they need just to enjoy life. Whatever you need, you got it. Money's not even involved anymore. So dig into the rest of that text, dig into each of those things that Joseph does, and I think you're gonna glean some really interesting insights into what it's going to be like when Jesus rules and reigns on the earth. He's basically gonna remove all the things that are the source of people's envy and ambition and jealousy, all the things that we covet, all the things that we're willing to take advantage of other people to get. He says, let's just get rid of those things. How? He's just gonna own everything. And he's going to distribute and bless everyone. It's going to be incredible. If you're completely lost, that's okay. You just got to listen to our light 27-part message series on the book of Revelation to catch up. That's all. Verse 27. So Israel, that's Jacob, dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Now when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. If you're hearing this for the first time, you're gonna be like, what the what? But as we've discussed before, even though this sounds weird to us, this is how they would make a binding agreement, how they would make a promise in that time. Basically, one of you would put your hand like on a seat where one person's thigh would go and they would sit on your hand and this would basically signify like, this is a binding agreement, you're trapped. Just like your hand is trapped under my thigh right now, you are in this agreement, you're stuck in this no matter what. And that's the idea. So, so Jacob says to Joseph, he says, listen, promise me something, promise me something. And he says, please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers bury me with my fathers in Israel. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Now in the Bible, Egypt is always a picture of what? The world, the world, the world that doesn't belong to God, that doesn't follow God. 
And while Jacob could be blessed in the world, he was blessed while he was in Egypt. It wasn't where he wanted to spend eternity. That's the idea here. He wanted to spend eternity in God's country. You know, you and I can be blessed in this life. We can be blessed in this place on earth. And indeed, everyone's going to be blessed on the earth in the millennial kingdom. But it's not our eternal destination. God's got something even better in mind for you and I, a a better country. You can check out the first few verses of Revelation 21 if you want to know more about that. Then we keep reading and it says, And he, Joseph, said, I will do as you have said. Then he, Jacob, said, Swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. So Israel, that's Jacob, bowed himself on the head of the bed. We'll keep charging into chapter 48. We're going to move quick. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, Indeed, your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, Look, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you as an everlasting possession. Not going to go on my usual rant here, but just saying again right here, God says Israel belongs to who? The Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, okay? Not the Arabs, not the so-called Palestinians or anybody else. And our position is simply when God takes a position, that's the side that we want to be on. That's our position. Verse 5, he says, And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt, are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. So on his deathbed, Jacob literally says, I'm adopting your two boys, your two grandsons. I love them so much. I'm just claiming them as my own sons. They're going to go down in my lineage. They're going to be in my will. They're going to be considered my boys, just like my actual boys are. And the idea is that Joseph says, you got it, Dad. His dad is dying. He says, you got it. But what a big deal this is, because the famous 12 tribes of Israel will now include Ephraim and Manasseh. This is a big, big deal. Verse 6, he says, your offspring, whom you beget after them, shall be yours. They'll be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. So he says, listen, Joey, anybody, any other kids you have after this, they can be your kids. But Ephraim and Manasseh, they're, they're mine. They're mine. But as for me, when I came from Padan, Rachel, his favorite wife, died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way. And there was but a little distance to go to Ephrath, and I buried her there on the way to Ephrath. Ephrath was another name for Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Joseph said to his father, they're my sons whom God has given me in this place. So why doesn't he recognize them? Well, verse 10 is going to tell us it's just that his eyes are failing from his old age. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. It's an incredible moment. He just says, Joseph, I thought, I thought I'd never see you again. And now God has not only let me see you again, but I've seen your sons. I've seen my grandsons. You know, our God is kind. And he loves to do more than we think is possible. And here's what I can promise you. If you will live your life day to day following Jesus, you will have more than a few moments in your life where you just go, God, you are so kind. You're so good. 
I, I had no idea that I would ever have a moment this good or moments this good in my life. I've had a bunch of them in my life. I've had, had moments all the time where uh, I just get to be with family around a table or out doing something. You have these moments where everyone's just happy to be together and you go, man. Uh, yeah, that actually happens every now and then, even with six kids. But uh, I'll just look around and I'll just go, man, like this moment right now is, is so good. So good. Don't miss those moments. Verse 12, so Joseph brought them from beside his knees and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand toward Israel's left hand and Manasseh with his left hand toward Israel's right hand and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head guiding his hands knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. Here's what's going on. The right hand, he's gonna pronounce the special blessing on the two sons, but the right hand is supposed to go on the firstborn because it signified the greater blessing. And we've talked before about the fact that when you're the firstborn, you get the birthright. It's not just a title, it's that you will go on to be the leader of the family when dad dies. It means you get a double portion of the inheritance. It means you are considered the, the priest, the pastor of the family. You become the patriarch. But Jacob is intentionally switching things up and he's getting ready to give the greater blessing, the firstborn blessing, to the younger son, Ephraim, rather than the older son, Manasseh. And this is troubling to Joseph as we shall see. Verse 15. And Jacob blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my life along to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. Now in the Old Testament, whenever you see the phrase the angel, not an angel, the angel, singular, who's it talking about? Jesus, Jesus. I like that you guys are like 50%. You're like, Jesus? No, that's not what I was going to say. I was going to say Jesus is good. That wasn't my answer. It is Jesus. It's Jesus. That's why the word angel has an uppercase A in your Bible. But more importantly, that's why the work attributed to this angel is what? Redeeming Jacob from all evil. That's what Jesus offers to do for all of us. Redeem us, save us, free us from sin. And if you read the text closely, do you notice that Jacob refers to the angel, Jesus, as part of the identity of God? He does it right in there. God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who's fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who has redeemed me from all evil. He says, bless the lads. Let my name be named upon them and the name of my fathers Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. This is the prayer of a grandpa who loves the Lord. He's just praying for his son and his grandsons and he says, God, the one who's provided for me and taken care of me my whole life, bless my boy and bless these boys. Let them know you, let them walk with you, and let them have a whole bunch of kids. Verse 17, now when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this is the one who's the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. He's saying, dad, you're blind as a bat and you're, seeing, you're getting it backwards. That's what Joseph is doing here. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great, but truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, 
and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So, so what's implied here is that Jacob's doing this because the Lord told him to do it. Why? Well, because as we've pointed out before, the Lord loves to do great things through unlikely candidates. He loves to use the least, not the greatest. He loves to use the last, not the first. If you know your Bible, he did it with Seth over Cain, Shem over Japheth, Isaac over Ishmael, Jacob himself over his brother Esau. In the future, we'll see Moses ahead of Aaron and most famously, David ahead of all of his brothers. Now, it's not that God plays favorites with anybody. It's not that God simply likes losers more than he likes winners or anything like that. What it seems to be is that the more gifts you have, the more natural talent, the more natural ability, the more charisma you have, the, the greater your position in life, the more likely you are to trust in yourself rather than the Lord. And so the Lord goes to less likely candidates because he finds people who are easier to work with. When people don't expect that God can do anything through them, they're like, God, you wanna use me? Absolutely. When people think the world of themselves, they're like, you need some help, God? It's your lucky day. I'm available to help. The Apostle Paul, he writes about this. He writes about how God likes to use people who are not under the illusion that they're the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's on your outlines. It's from 1 Corinthians. Paul says, for you see your calling, brethren. He's like, look around you, church, and you'll notice that there's not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble who are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen, and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence." Just the idea is God loves to work through people where people look on and they say, the only explanation is that God is doing something because it's him, because it's her. I mean, they're bringing nothing to the table. This has to be a work of God. And when I read that, a couple of things hit me. Firstly, it makes me say, oh, so that's why God called me to be a pastor. I'm one of the foolish and weak things of the world, and I'm so glad I am. I'm so glad I am. But secondly, it brings to mind the philosophical schools of thought which dominate our culture today. You know, if you would preach this message 10 years ago, 15 years ago, if you're a pastor, the obvious angle is like, now I know that many of you probably feel like losers, that God could never do anything through you, but God can, and people go, oh wow, he can use me, he can use me. And, and things have changed so much in the last decade. Now you're more likely to preach this message and people would go, well, no, I'm not a loser at all. I'm, I'm amazing, in fact. I'm pretty freaking incredible. In fact, I get up every day and stand in front of the mirror and make a statement about how great I am, about the power that I have to transform my world in my day through my thoughts, just through my presence. There's this school of thought that I keep seeing over and over again. It's on social media, it's everywhere. I know tons of people who believe this stuff. Uh, the idea of you're more powerful than you know. Whatever you need, whatever answers you're seeking, they're found within yourself. 
And that's, it always cracks me up because half the time it's like women who've just broken up with their boyfriend and they're devastated, but they're saying, every answer I need is in myself. It's like, what? You were depressed that you just broke up with your boyfriend two days ago and now you're a god? Come on, okay. Or messages like, you are enough. You know, or literally, you're, you're a god. You're a goddess. And you know, our, our flesh, the part of us that's contaminated by sin, loves these messages for obvious reasons because they're exactly what we would love to believe is true. Everyone would love to believe that. Wouldn't you love to believe that just by thinking differently, you can attract money? Universe, bring it to me. Everyone would love to believe that that, that, that sort of thing is possible. But the obvious problem is that that's demonstrably untrue. So easy to disprove that that's not true. But the bigger issue is that those types of thoughts, those types of philosophies are ultimately designed to do one thing. They're designed to put up barriers between you and God because the, the more you believe that you are basically God, the less you'll be able to see your need for the real God. Your pride and your ego begin to blind you to the truth. This has been going on forever, by the way. What did Satan say to Eve in the Garden of Eden? He said, you should take and eat of the fruit. Why? Because if you will, you will be what? Like God. That's the pitch. Since the very beginning, Eve, you've got to start viewing yourself as you really are. A God. And put up this barrier between men and women and God. And the truth is that no matter how great you are, you can't solve the problem that you're a sinner. And Jesus is the only one who can forgive your sins and mend your relationship with God and change your eternal destiny. That's why it says, not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. And so Satan says, really? Well then, I better get to work convincing as many people as I can that they are wise and mighty and noble because that way they won't turn to Jesus and be saved. So the philosophies we're talking about are, are not simply motivational perspectives. They're strategies that Satan has been using from the beginning of the world to put up barriers between us and God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says God resists the proud but he gives grace to the humble. He gives grace to the humble. Verse 20, hang with me, we're almost done. It says, so he blessed them that day, saying, by you Israel will bless, saying, may God make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And through the centuries, Ephraim would indeed become a much greater tribe than Manasseh. That will play out across the whole Old Testament. Verse 21, then Israel said to Joseph, behold, I'm dying, and then underline this, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. You know, this is the greatest comfort that a father can offer his children, to teach them that their hope is in God. Whoever you are, however old you are, I'm sorry if no one's ever told you this, but, but you're dying. You're dying, you know this, right? You're dying, I'm dying, we're, we're all dying. And I won't always be around to help my kids with their problems. Neither will Charlene. But you know who will never leave or forsake my kids? The Lord. 
He'll be with them always. And so the best thing I can do for my kids is teach them to find their hope and their comfort and security in God. He'll be with them every day of their lives, and when their life is over, he'll bring them home to his presence in heaven. I won't always be here for my kids. But you know what else? Even while I'm here, I won't always get it right. In fact, I'll get it wrong a lot of the time. I'll let them down. I'll disappoint them. I'll fail to notice things that are important. I I won't encourage them when encouragement is needed. And if their hope is in me, they're in for a very, very disappointing life. But if their hope is in the Lord, they'll never be disappointed. Teach your kids to hope in the Lord. Teach them to find comfort in knowing the Lord is with them. And teach them by living that way yourself. Your greatest comfort, my greatest comfort in life is this. God is with us and he'll bring us home. He'll bring us home. Would you write this down? Our greatest comfort is knowing that God is with us and will bring us home. He'll bring us home. Last verse of the chapter, verse 22. He says, moreover, I have given to you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. So just just wait a minute. Wait a minute. This is really interesting. He throws it in as like a bonus track. You know when you'd get a CD and there'd be like five minutes of silence and then like a secret track? I don't know if you guys remember that. This is what it's like. It's like a secret track. He's like, oh, one, one more thing. The firstborn, the firstborn would get a double portion of the inheritance. It was part of the birthright. So what he's doing here is he's actually telling Joseph, I'm giving you a double portion. I'm giving you the birthright. I'm treating you like you're the firstborn, even though he wasn't. Reuben was. Because yet again, God's plan is to go through an unlikely candidate, not the firstborn, not the strongest, but the one who seeks God. And I need to point something else out here. Jacob, when we met him like a long time ago, do you remember he was not the warrior type? His brother Esau was a hunter, a man's man, but we were told that Jacob, he was kind of a loser. He was, he was a homebody who, while his brother was out hunting and contributing to the family, he just sort of wanted to hang out in the tent and uh, work on his recipe book with his mom. He was a guy who was just on track to, to live out his life, mooching off his parents. He was like in his 70s when his life finally starts getting together. And now we find out that there was a time in his life when Jacob got into an armed conflict with an Amorite and took him down. And he took the territory of that Amorite and now he gives that land to his son Joseph on his deathbed. And this story isn't recorded anywhere in the Genesis account, but we learn about it here on his deathbed. And there's more to Jacob's life, it turns out, than any of us realized. And if you have parents, I just want to say this, if you have parents who are believers, even if they've passed away, Let me tell you what I know with with absolute certainty. There has been more to their lives than you realize. There have been battles that they fought, spiritually, emotionally, in various other ways that that you don't know about. They don't want you to know about them right now. And as someone who's blessed to have a mom and dad who love Jesus, I can tell you this, the older I get, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more grateful I am for them. The more grateful I am for all the times that I don't know about when they held the line of faith in our family. The more grateful I am for, for the valleys that they've been through that I know, I know nothing about. If your parents love Jesus, they've fought and won battles you know nothing about. But one day you will. 
and you will rejoice and celebrate with them over how the Lord was with you and them through those battles in life and, and how he got you all home after your earthly life came to an end. So all that to say, honor your mother and father. You don't know the half of their story. Trust me, trust me. I say that as a son and as a father. I'll say this in wrapping up. Put your hope in the Lord. He's with you. He'll never leave you. He'll never forsake you, and he'll get you home. I'm so grateful, as I said, for my parents, but I need you to also know, man, I'm so grateful for, for all of you, those of you who are fighting and winning battles of faith that most people don't know about. And I know some of your stories. But there are people that God wants to know and there are times that he wants them to know. And God will let those people know at those times. And I know some of your stories and they bless me. They encourage me. Your faith builds my faith. I love that. I don't have to dig out books to find great stories of faith. I know that some of you are living out incredible, incredible stories of faith and have been through incredible stories of faith. So keep the faith, keep going. Serving the Lord is never wasted energy, ever. Keep the faith, and the Lord promises you'll see the results in time. Galatians 6, 9 says, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap, if what? If we do not lose heart. If we do not lose heart. How good do you think it felt when Jacob was able to say, Oh yeah, one more thing, Joseph. I got some territory for you. I took it from an Amorite with my bow and right before he dies he gets to hear Joseph say dad I had no idea you were such a badass it would have been a fun moment it would have been a fun moment so keep the faith and you're going to have some moments in your future that are going to make it all worthwhile and can I tell you one last thing that I love about belonging to Jesus I love that I get to tell my kids and I get to tell you and I get to tell myself this truth that if you've placed your hope in Jesus, the story of your life will end like this, and they lived happily ever after. If your life belongs to Jesus, then he's with you. He'll never leave you, he'll never forsake you, he'll get you home to him, and you will live happily ever after, for real, for real. Man, what a blessing it is to belong to the Lord. With that, let's pray together. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, for the encouragement of your word. Thank you for the promise that you're gonna get us home, Lord. That you've made a way to get us home through your son, Jesus. Lord, we know that you're kind. We know that you love to bless us, but we also know that the secret to being blessed is giving everything to your son Jesus, viewing ourselves as being your servants, Father. And we just want you to know this evening, Lord, that we, we understand what you've done for us and we are so glad to be your servants. We're so glad to offer our lives to you because Jesus, you offered your life for us on the cross. Father, I pray for anyone here who's distant from you that you would draw near to them tonight and that you would call them to draw near to you. Father, if there's anything you wanna do in us, would you just reveal it to us while we sing? Help us to walk out of here closer to you than we were when we walked in, Jesus.
Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing, go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it. And finally, if you'd like to support the Bible teaching ministry of New Hope through financial giving, you can also do that through our website. Just go to mynewhope.ca slash give. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for being in the Word of God with us. And always remember, God is with you.